Good afternoon and welcome to the Serious Security Seminar from Purdue University. Our speaker today is a PhD student working with uh, Professor Christina Nita Rotaru, is that right? Nenghui Li. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Uh, he anticipates graduating in a year or so. Uh, his topic today is using probabilistic generative models for ranking the risk of Android applications. Are you talking about robots today? Or? Yeah, robots okay. and androids and all that. All right. So thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, it's a little bit scary for me because I recognize about half of you from the information security class that I took. So I hope nobody holds a grudge or anything like that about some grade you got or anything. Um, uh, so like you said, today I'll be talking about this, this thing, using probabilistic generative models for ranking the risk of Android apps. But first, before I do that, um, I'm going to just talk a little bit uh, about machine learning, at kind of a very high level overview. Um, because could you raise your hands if you've taken a machine learning course in the past or a statistics course or anything like that? So not too many people. So this will be a very, very high level overview um, of some machine learning uh, concepts. Um, so you can ask the question, what is machine learning? Um, and some people have said it's a field of study that gives computers the ability to learn without actually uh, explicitly being programmed. Uh, to do the things that they do, uh, or it's the construction and study of systems that can learn from data. So what this really means in practice is that giving uh, some computer or some uh, algorithm a lot of data, can you construct a model for that data and then do something with that? So predict something about the future or extract some meaning from that data that you didn't have just uh, right there in the data, obviously. Um, so one, uh, one thing that a lot of people do is try to do prediction for future data that you might receive. So if you're given lots of data points, uh, you may want to fit a curve to that data point, uh, to those data points that you're given. So here you can assume um, that this green line is some function, and you don't know what that function is, but somebody gives you lots of these blue circles that kind of uh, approximate that function. So you know the values at these x value uh, at these x positions, and then they add some noise, and so you get kind of an approximation um, of this function through these, these blue circles. Um, and so you could ask, like, how would you go about fitting a curve to these blue circles um, so that when you're given another point, another x value, you can predict what the y or the t value, in this case, um, is going to be. So this is kind of the idea of prediction, and so you can think about this as a polynomial curve fitting problem, and if you fit a third degree, a third order polynomial to this, then you'll get kind of a red line like this, and then, can you see my mouse? Yeah. So if you were to try to predict a value out here, uh, you could kind of approximate that value very closely um, without knowing a whole lot um, about the underlying, uh, the underlying uh, function that generated these data points. Um, you're kind of approximating that, that function. Um, so this is something you can do, which is prediction. And so you can predict housing prices based on the square foot of a house, or you can do lots of interesting things with this. Um, another thing that you may want to do is do classification. Uh, so kind of the main example in security here is if you have spam email and normal email, and you want to somehow, uh, when a new email comes in, you want to label it as being spam or not spam, um, you can do lots of different things to do that. A few of those things are the k-nearest neighbor. So if you can, um, if you can given a new piece of email, if you have a bunch of labeled data of spam and not spam, you can see who the closest neighbors are and then uh, take kind of the average of your neighbors. And if you're more like spam, you're probably spam. And if you're more like a normal piece of mail, you're probably normal. Um, 
or you can do this thing called singular value decomposition. Um, and essentially what you're trying to do there is draw a line through space um, uh, so that you kind of maximize the partition of this data. So you want all the spam stuff to be over in this red area and all the good stuff to be over in this blue area. And so the, the learning of that line is, is one thing that you can do um, here. And that's, SVD is a little bit more complicated than that, but, but that's kind of the heart of what you're doing there. Um, so these are all things that <clears throat> I'm trying to, to introduce at a high level um, so that later when I'm talking about the paper, you have just a little bit of familiar, familiarity with these things because we're using some of these concepts later. Um, so then the next thing I'm going to talk about is have, what kinds of data can you have. You can have labeled data or you can have unlabeled data. So if you're doing supervised learning, um, then you'll have lots of labeled data. So you know if, if an email is spam or if it's not spam. Um, and this is uh, a very effective way to do machine learning. Um, but the problem here is that you need to, to label this data somehow, and that's not always an easy task. Um, and so on the other side of that coin, you may have unsupervised learning. Um, and here, you basically don't have any labels for the data. Um, and you are trying to find some hidden structure or just fit some model to the data that you can use later for prediction or things like that. Um, and then there's super uh, I'm sorry, semi-supervised uh, learning, which is kind of a mixture of the two. So you have a lot of data, um, but you only take the effort to label some small subset of that data, and then you use that to kind of learn. Um, so maybe you only label a few of the messages as spam, and then you can learn a larger structure from that. Um, And then another concept is uh, what are you actually observing um, and what's the hidden structure in your data? So um, you may be able to observe something through the sensors or through characteristics of the email or things like that, um, but you may not be able to observe everything. Um, and these, these unobserved things uh, that are there are called latent variables. And so sometimes the main task of machine learning is to actually figure out what these latent variables are and how they relate to your data. Um, one kind of classic example of this is uh, latent Dirichlet allocation, or LDA. Um, and the goal here is you want to find the topics or categories of a collection or a corpus of documents. And so you're given all the words. That's this W here. Um, you're given all the words. Um, and the goal is to figure out what the topics are for this collection of documents. So you may have documents related to business or documents related to technology or medicine or sports or all these things. And you want to figure out what the categories are and how each uh, document is participating in those categories. Um, and so we have this concept of observed or uh, latent variables. Um, and then why am I talking about all this? Well, all this applies uh, to security. So um, classification you can use to identify spam or non-spam email, like I had mentioned. Um, you can use some machine learning techniques to try and uh, identify what websites people are visiting. So if you have just a bunch of encrypted uh, data over a network wire that you can sniff, um, <clears throat> instead, of, uh, instead of just saying, well, I can't do anything with it, it's encrypted, you can still maybe infer some information there. You can say, well, based on the packet sizes and the timing of those packets, you can still guess, well, it looks like they're going to Google or Yahoo or Bing because of the way that these packets are coming. So you can imagine when you request Google, you request the main page, but then you have to request all the images and the style sheets and all these other things. And so you can sort of build a signature for all these different web pages, and then you can use machine learning uh, to say, well, with some probability, I think they're visiting this um, web page. 
Um, you can also use machine learning for anomaly detection. Uh, so you can imagine having a process uh, and you're monitoring all the system calls that this process is making and you can learn some normal behavior that you expect this process to, to be doing. And then you can, when you see that this process is deviating from that behavior, you can say with some confidence and some probability that this process may be exploited um, and it's doing something you're not expecting. Same with the network level, you can do the same thing by monitoring all the network points. You can kind of come up with some expectation of your system and then see when anomalies are happening on your system. And because you're dealing with so many points, it's kind of natural to, to, to Put these into a machine learning context where you can just process this data uh, very effectively. Um, one other thing I'll talk about is not in this talk today but just right now is role mining. Um, so you can imagine that you, uh, you're given a big access log uh, for lots of uh, how users in a system are accessing dis different resources or objects on your in your whole system um, and then you can uh, you can essentially do role mining to figure out uh, what the access control policies should be that you have in your system to sort of minimize uh, the permissions that are out there and who's doing what. Um, and this is uh, used oftentimes for role-based access control where you have this concept of roles and every role has a set of permissions and then users are assigned to these roles and so you can kind of come up with the, the optimal mapping of permissions to roles to users um, through this thing called role mining. Um, and there's been a lot of research recently in that direction. Um, and there's lots of other things too, so you can do this for pattern recognition, um, people use this to do facial recognition, which is a big privacy thing, um, and the list goes on and on. So all that is to say, I think this is an important thing, and if this interests you, then I would encourage you to look into it more. Uh, we're collecting more and more data in all of these systems, and corporations, they have these security information and event management systems. Uh, that they're putting in their networks uh, and on their systems so that they can collect really big logs of all the events that are happening um, in their corporation. And you have all these mobile sensors and mobile, mobile phones that you're getting data from these days and cloud computing, you can collect a lot of data there. Um, and so I think this is a really big challenge and, and important questions that can be asked um, for all this big data. And if you read any blogs like the RSA blog or lots of different blogs, they're all talking about um, big data, what are we doing with it, how can we most effectively use it in the security context. Um, and you have to kind of have a background in this if you want to ask the right questions and leverage all this information. Um, so if this is something that interests you, I would encourage you guys all to take this machine learning uh, course that's offered here, or if you don't have time for that, you, you can go on to Stanford. Uh, Stanford has some videos on Coursera that are pretty good. Uh, just to kind of get a background and primer and see if this is something that interests you. Um, so that's my kind of machine learning plug slash introduction. Um, and so now I'm going to actually talk about the topic that I'm here to talk about today, which is using probabilistic generative models for ranking the risk of Android applications. And that's really a mouthful, um, but it's actually pretty simple when we get down to it. So um, are there any questions at this point? All right, so how many of you guys have Android devices? Smartphones in general, how many? Okay, so like maybe half the class, maybe a little more. Um, just curious, so, okay. So kind of the motivation behind this is uh, Android has been growing very, very quickly. Um, as of last September, there were 500 million active devices, um, 1.3 million new activations every day, um, Google Play, uh, 
had about almost 700,000 applications in their app store um, that people can download and put on their phones or mobile devices. Um, and I think the truly astonishing thing about this is that they had 25 billion installations. So all these applications have been installed so many times across all these devices. Um, and the reason for this is that it's really easy to install these things on your phones. They've aggregated these into one location um, and it's really simple just to kind of click around a little bit um, and you know you find some app you might like so you go ahead and it's not, it's only a dollar so what the heck just go ahead and install it um, and with just a few clicks you can get this thing running on your phone um, and doing whatever it is that it does on your phone and you can just repeat this process over and over and all of a sudden you've installed you know 10 or 15 or 100 different apps on your phone and you know what have you actually let onto your phone you're not really sure um, so Android security actually is pretty good though. So they have this thing called you know, sandboxing all the applications. Everything runs in its own context. These, these applications can't really interfere with each other very much unless they've requested permissions to do so. Um, <clears throat> and so, so it does a pretty good, at, you know, a pretty good job of kind of uh, separating out these applications. Um, and to perform riskier, app, uh, riskier actions, uh, all these applications have to request permissions. Um, so if you want to send out SMSs, or if you want to connect to the internet, or you want to do all these things, you have to request these permissions in order to do that. The problem here is that all of these, uh, these permissions, it's the user is the person who's making these decisions. So they're relying very heavily on the user to make these decisions. And the permissions are kind of confusing. The way they're described, a typical user isn't necessarily going to understand what what they're giving away by granting this permission. And it's also hidden away. You have to click a few times uh, in order to see the permissions before clicking the installation button. Uh, when you do click the installation button, uh, you are forced to look at all the permissions very quickly. Uh, but in practice, I think a lot of people don't uh, look at those because you know, they've already made the decision to install it. They click the install button once, and then they're presented with the installation uh, with all the permissions. And so they're probably going to not be swayed at that point to change their mind. And you have this all-or-nothing approach to the permissions. You, um, you can't selectively say, well, I don't want this app to look at my contacts or my geolocation, but I will allow it to you know, vibrate the device um, and connect to the Internet. You, can't, you don't have this choice. You have to say yes to everything where you don't install it. So in practice, what happens is most users are kind of conditioned to ignore, um, ignore these permissions and just accept everything all the time, no matter what the app is. So there's been kind of two primary veins of research uh, here. Um, I know that uh, Professor Ank came last semester and talked about these things a little bit as well. Um, but uh, so one of the things that they do is they focus on the operating system. So Dr. Ank had Taint Droid, which is an information flow uh, tracking system that will look at uh, how data is passing through the application. So if your contacts are accessed and then later uh, they try and send out your contacts over the internet, um, this is going to be detected and Taintroid will stop that. Um, and then the user has to approve it or not. Um, you have AppFence, uh, which can report fake information, and Apex and SE Android, which are basically all ways of constraining what these applications can do. Um, so you can put more fine-grained policies on how these permissions are used and how the data is used. Um, and then another vein of research is to focus on the applications themselves. Um, so you can take these applications, you can decompile them, you can insert your security hooks uh, directly into the application and then recompile it and then run these recompiled applications on your phone. 
Um, and then it has to abide by whatever security hooks you've placed on there. Uh, it's questionable if this is, this is probably a violation of the terms of services of all these apps. Um, and so it's probably not going to be something that's deployed um, with any wide acceptance. Um, and so then our approach is kind of going away from the system, away from the apps, and we'd rather focus a little bit more on the user. So we want to quantify the risk of an app via something like a risk score. Um, so that we can communicate that risk to the users in a more intuitive way um, and help them make better decisions about the apps that they're installing. So we kind of set up these properties of a risk score that we think are desirable, not necessary, but desirable. Um, so apps that are known to be malicious should in general have a higher risk score than you know apps that are not known to be malicious. Um, the risk scoring function should be something that's simple and easy to understand and can be explained to people or people can at least be educated about a little bit. Um, and the risk scoring function should be monotonic. Um, so a monotonic function is a function that is only increasing, it never decreases. Uh, I mean, once it's increasing, it's only ever increasing. So like this function right here wouldn't dip down and then come back up. It's only ever increasing. So this is a monotonic function. And what we mean there is that uh, if you're removing a permission it should reduce the risk, and if you're adding permissions, it should increase the risk. Uh, we don't want the situation where um, you're removing a, a permission and it's actually increasing your risk, because that doesn't really make sense. Um, and so this gives the developers a way of kind of knowing how to reduce the risk of their app. So if they think that their app is too risky, they have a very intuitive way to reduce the risk, which is removing permissions. Um, and we kind of envision this as a relative risk score, so you would sort all of the apps by some measure of risk, and then, and then you can kind of cut that into buckets by thresholds, and then you could present that information to the user in kind of a more natural way for them to consume it, as opposed to having to go look at the permissions, they get this very kind of clear picture of the risk that an app presents. Um, so. So our approach here is we're going to use these probabilistic generative models uh, to sort of construct this risk scoring function. And so we're going to collect a lot of apps, these unlabeled apps. Remember we talked about labeled versus unlabeled data. So we just collect a lot of data, a lot of unlabeled data, um, and we make some assumptions uh, about how we expect this data to behave. And then we pipe this through our algorithm, um, and we, we get some model parameters for this data that we collected. Um, and then we take our model um, and we want to do prediction with that model. So we take this model and <clears throat> we, we take a new app and we take the model and we see how well this new app is going to fit, um, fit together and we use that to, to make a prediction about the app. And the better that it fits, the better that this app fits the model, uh, essentially the less risky we'll think it's going to be because it sort of conforms to what we expect to see. And the worse that this app fits the model, um, the more risky it's going to be because it's kind of something we haven't seen before and so we don't really know why it looks like that and, and we expect that to be a more risky application. Um, so we're going to talk about four different uh, generative models here. Um, we're going to talk about this basic naive Bayes. Uh, we're going to talk an, about a naive Bayes with a more informative prior behind it, uh, a mixture of naive Bayes and a hierarchical mixture of naive Bayes. Uh, the data that we have is going to just be this very simple representation. Um, we don't decompile anything or do anything fancy. We just look at an application, the category that it's in, and then a permission vector. Um, so the category, there are about 26 categories in, in the Android data set when we, when we looked at it. 
Um, and then every permission for these apps, so these XI1s, uh, is going to be a 1 if the ith app is requesting the nth permission and it's going to be a 0 otherwise. So this is just a very easy way to represent these feature vectors. Um, and these permissions are going to correspond to full network access, read phone state and identity, modify or delete this thing. Um, so yeah. <clears throat> So because we're dealing with this 0 or 1 permission data, uh, we're going to assume that these things have a Bernoulli distribution behind them. And essentially all that means is it's a coin flip. Um, and you're going to have some probability of coming up heads and some other probability of coming up tails. Um, so your probability of being a heads is going to be the probability of x equaling 1, which is equal to theta. Um, and we don't know what this theta is yet, but it's equal to theta. Um, and because there's only two values here, uh, the probability that x equals 0 and the probability that x equals 1 has to add up to 1 here. Um, and since we know the probability that x equals 1, uh, we can just reduce this so that the probability that x equals 0 is 1 minus theta. So this makes perfect sense. If you have a 50% chance of getting a heads, you're going to have a 50% chance of getting a tails. If you have a 60% chance of getting a heads, you're going to have a 40% chance of getting a tails. Um, and the way that this is uh, expressed is just a single equation is through this, uh, this equation here. And so what this says is um, if this x is a 1, then uh, this second term is going to be 1 minus x, which is 1 minus 1, and this is going to go to 0. And so this whole term, anything to the 0 power is 1. Um, and so this theta value is going to be what actually comes through this equation. And if this x is a 0, then the opposite is going to hold. Um, so this is going to be 0, and this whole term is going to be 1. And then this value over here is going to be 1 minus theta that comes out of this, this function. And then for a vector of variables, if you flip the coin twice, say, um, then it's really just multiplying these probabilities together. And so if you're your theta value is 0.5, then all of these things are going to happen equally likely. If your theta value is 0.75, then uh, you think that you're probably going to get a 1 more often, and what this turns into, a vector of 1 and 1 is going to be about 56% of the time, and these other vectors uh, are going to be less often. Is that kind of clear? Um, so this is really uh, the main, the main uh, way that we're going to calculate the probabilities for this most basic case. So our most basic model is going to treat all these permissions as separate and independent Bernoulli random variables. And so it's like flipping lots of different coins, one for each permission, and each one's going to have a different probability of coming up. Um, and so then in order to calculate uh, the probability of seeing any specific vector, all we have to do is multiply all these individual probabilities together, um, and then we can say the probability of seeing that vector. Um, and so that's what we do. Um, <clears throat> and just a really simple, small example here. Um, assume we have only three permissions. Uh, then this is the equation from the previous slide. Um, if our theta 1 value is, say, 0.1, our theta 2 value is 0.2, and our theta 3 value is 0.7, then for an app with the permission vector 0, 1, 1, um, we're going to have the first value is a 0, so we're going to see 1 minus point, uh, 0.1 come through, so this is going to be 0.9. Our second uh, permission was a 1, so we're going to see the 0.2 value come through. Our third permission was 0.7, so we're going to see that third theta value come through. You multiply all those together, and this is the probability of seeing this permission vector. 
Um, if you remove that center, that middle permission, then essentially all that's going to happen is you're going to flip that middle term. So instead of 0.2, it's going to be 1 minus 0.2. And this is the probability of seeing this permission vector. Um, and then so forth. So that last term now flips, and this is the probability of seeing um, this last permission vector. So the reason that I chose this example is, first of all, it's very simple, and I think it gives a good, uh, you know, it's, it's a very clear example of what we're actually doing here. But the second reason is, uh, this actually violates that monotonic property that I talked about initially. So um, when one of these theta values is greater than 0.5, then actually requesting that permission is going to give you a higher probability than not requesting it. So when we remove this last permission, we actually see the probability of that vector going down instead of increasing. And that's one of the properties that we said we wanted. Um, so I just wanted to make that point, um, and that's why I chose this example. Um, and so the next thing that you should be asking is, well, how do you calculate these theta values? And the way that we do that is uh, using a maximum a posterior estimation uh, to determine the model parameters. And essentially what that means is we want to find the, the posterior distribution for our data that's going to that's gonna maximize um, the probability of our data fitting those model parameters. And uh, to avoid overfitting, we use a beta prior. That's not really important, but it'll come into play in the next, um, the next model. And so what this means in practice, you know, it's all this fancy language, maximum a posterior estimation. Um, but all this really means is we're going to take the number of times a permission was requested divided by the total number of data points we have, and that's the probability that this permission is requested by any specific app. Um, so, as an example, if we have 100,000 data points in our data set um, and the jth permission is requested 60,000 times, then we're going to have our theta j value being about 0.6. Um, so that's, that's how we create all of our theta values and then we use that prior thing to, uh, to calculate the probability of any permission vector and this is the basic uh, model that we talk about. So the next model uh, is uh, kind of just a slight extension to that previous model. Uh, so in the previous model, all the permissions are treated exactly the same. Um, but in practice, that's not necessarily what we should be doing. So certain permissions are going to be more risky than other permissions. Um, and so we introduce this, uh, this informative prior. So a high-risk permission like sending SMS or reading uh, your contact list or recording audio is going to be weighted differently um, than a normal like vibrate your phone permission. Um, so to capture this, we essentially uh, use these B, M values and AM values that I kind of glossed over in the previous model. Um, so a high-risk application is going to get 2N as its BN, BM value, medium is going to get N, and a low-risk is going to get 1. And then <clears throat> we're going to calculate our thetas in just a slightly different way. Uh, as an example, same example as before, N is 100,000. Uh, the permissions are, permission M is requested 60,000 times, so for a low risk application, nothing changes at all. This is exactly the same, about 0.6. Um, for a medium risk application, what we're ending up doing is uh, essentially doubling the denominator. And so this essentially cuts uh, the, the theta value in half down to 0.3. And in the high risk permission case, uh, you're, you're tripling the denominator, so you're essentially cutting the theta value by a third. Um, 
And so what this does is it, even if a permission that's high risk is requested very, very frequently, it's going to penalize this so that uh, we expect to not see it as much and, and it's going to penalize applications that do request that permission. So this is kind of the end of these simple, these two simple models that I'm going to talk about. So the interesting thing here is that uh, we'll see later during our evaluation, these actually do a pretty good job. Even though they're very basic, you know, you're just taking averages and then multiplying things together, uh, they actually do a very good job of kind of this risk evaluation that we'll do later. Um, and they're very simple to understand. Uh, it's very clear how to reduce the risk of any application because you just have to remove permissions um, as long as your theta values aren't greater than 0.5. Um, and in practice, the only permission that is greater than 0.5 is internet. Uh, all the other permissions are naturally less than 0.5 at this point. Um, and uh, since internet is a high-risk permission, it reduces it to below uh, 0.5. And so these are, and for this naive base with the prior, uh, this, this becomes a monotonic model. Um, so that's it for this uh, these models. Uh, so now I'm going to move on to a slightly more complicated model. Um, remember in the beginning I talked about these observed first latent topics, uh, I'm sorry, observed first latent variables. Um, so this time we're going to assume that there's some latent structure hidden in our permissions. So, uh, so each, each application is a combination of these latent topics and each topic has its own uh, probability distribution on the permissions. Um, and so this is now represented by this new equation. Um, and so here you can see that the latent topic is going to have its own theta, dis, uh, theta values for all the different permissions. And so you're calculating the vector against each topic's theta values. And then each topic is also going to have some probability of appearing in our, in our data. Um, and so this is just a slight change to our, 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 uh, our calculation, which represents this. Um, so essentially what this gets us is that we can now represent the co-occurrence of permissions. So before every permission was independent and this allows us to now model uh, permissions that occur frequently together. Um, so for instance for photo, so you can imagine a photo related latent topic which uh, takes a photo and writes it out to the SD card. And so these permissions are going to appear together very frequently. Or you can imagine an ad network uh, which is going to want to know your geolocation and retrieve ads off the internet and so they're going to appear very often together. And so this is a way to model those latent topics. Um, and then it does get a little more complicated to actually calculate these things. So instead of just averaging you know, over the permissions requested by the number of data points, we have to use uh, something called expectation maximization uh, to derive these latent topics. Um, and what you do to do that is uh, you basically expand this equation up here. Um, out a little more, you marginalize out some variables, and then you end up with some some new formulas. And all this is is an iterative process. So you 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 initialize your variables, you initialize all your theta km values uh, to some random to some some values, and then <clears throat> you're going to calculate this p z equal k um, given x and theta uh, for all of the k values. So you have to specify some number of k, and then you're going to calculate this probability for all the k values. And the only thing you don't really know here is this theta km value. So you know the xim, um, and you know everything else. The only thing you don't know is these theta km values. So you use your guess theta km values to, to first approximate this pz equal k given x and theta. And then you then take that 
uh, once you've calculated all of them, you then take all those values and then you plug that into this bottom equation and you do this maximization step. Um, and now you're refining your theta km values given what you had just calculated. Um, and then you just iterate over that. And so now you use the theta km values you had previously calculated to then refine your probability of z equal k given x and theta. And then you just iterate. And you do this until you converge, or you do this for some number of iterations, and then you stop. And then you have your, your latent topics and you have your distributions over those latent topics. and then you're happy, um, presumably. <laughs> so the main problem here is that uh, you kind of lose this monotonic property in this model because now some of our theta KMs may be greater than 0.5 and it's kind of more difficult to reason about how it's going to affect um, when you remove a permission or don't remove it. Um, so this is the next model we talk about. So the final model that we're going to talk about <clears throat> is a slight tweak to this. So in the previous model, we assumed all of our data was basically the same, and we learned those latent topics with the same probabilities across all, uh, all the data. And in this model, uh, instead of assuming that all the data is the same, we're going to incorporate those category uh, labels that we had talked about initially with the data. Um, and then we're going to learn the latent topics, so we're going to learn these Z, the theta Z values across all the data, but um, we're going to learn these prob the, the probability of Zs only across the categories. Um, and so what this allows you to do is, uh, so for the photo and video category, you're going to put a higher preference for those, those latent topics that are related to photos and things like that. So that photo, uh, take a photo and write to the SD card is going to be highly expressed in the photo and video topic uh, category and not probably as highly expressed in like the gaming category or things like that. Um, <clears throat> and the math here uh, gets kind of complicated kind of quickly, and so I'm not going to go into this, uh, but if you are curious, we do write out a lot of the formulas in our paper, so I would encourage you to go to the paper. So for our evaluation, uh, we collected two data sets from the Google Play Market. Um, we collected one in February 2011 with about 158,000 apps, and we collected one uh, in February a year later in 2012 with about 325,000 apps. Um, and we had a small malware data set with about 600 apps in it um, from some project from uh, called the Malware Genome Project. And they give out malware, Android malware, to research uh, communities. So. so if this is something that you want to use, you could ask them or you could ask your advisor to ask them to get that. <clears throat> we did some cleaning on this data. We've removed duplicates. There's a lot of publishers who put, you know, a thousand of the exact same app with very small tweaks to it. So you can imagine a wallpaper app that is requesting the same set of permissions and one of the apps is for dragons and one is for princesses and one is, and so they have all these different themed apps uh, that repeat very often. Um, but we didn't want that to kind of influence our model unduly, so we removed the duplicates. And that's pretty much the only cleaning we did. Um, and then just to give you a little bit of a high-level intuition into the data, um, <clears throat> so you can see between the 2011 and the 2012 data set that there are more permission, uh, more applications, so I'm sorry, so this x value is the number of permissions that each uh, application is requesting, and this y uh, axis is the percentage of applications that are requesting uh, that many permissions. And so you can see that in the 2012 data set there are more applications that are requesting more permissions. Um, and you can see that the malware is actually much different. Um, it's a little unfair because there's so few malware, but 
the malware in general is requesting a lot of permissions. Um, there are a few malware that are requesting very few permissions, and this is, uh, I think, generally due to the fact that some malware only needs a little bit of a foothold into the system, and then they're doing some sort of system exploit, and then they're gaining more root privileges um, from that. Um, <clears throat> so to do our evaluation, um, remember we said in the beginning we want to evaluate more malicious apps as being high risk because we think malicious apps are high risk. Um, and so to do our evaluation, we compare against uh, Kieran and this other thing called RCP, RPCP, which is rare critical permissions and rare pairs of critical permissions. Um, and that's actually something that we had worked on previously and kind of uh, led up to this work. So this is a lot of the same authors from, from that paper are on this paper. Um, <clears throat> so we compare our evaluation against these two other works. Um, and we basically generate all the model parameters, and the goal, again, is to identify more malware as high risk. Um, and so you can see from this chart that, um, so these lines up here are all the models that we present in our paper. These two lines right here are the models from our previous work. Um, and this right here is that Kieran thing. Uh, the Kieran thing uh, basically created a, a series of rules, um, and if you violate those rules, then you're kind of considered to be risky. Um, and so basically what we did is we, uh, we, uh, we, we ranked all the risks for all the applications we wanted to evaluate, and then we slid a threshold uh, going across, and we counted the number of malware apps that were above that threshold, and we counted the number of non-malware, the market data apps that were above that threshold. And the malware apps are this true positive uh, axis, and the, um, the, the non-malware apps are this false positive rate. Um, and so you can see how how well we're doing identifying the malware. And you'd prefer these curves to be very tight up, close to one up here. Um, <clears throat> but in some sense, you don't want these curves to be too tight, close to one, because there are a lot of risky applications in the market data set too. We didn't you know, clean this, we don't have labels for this data, so, and we assume that there are a lot of risky applications in the market data. Um, and so we don't want it to be too close to one in some sense. Um, and so just zooming in a little bit, um, you can see uh, that this hierarchical mixture of naive bays really does perform very, very well compared to their, everything else. It should because it's the most complicated. Um, <clears throat> and I think it took, you know, many orders of magnitude longer to compute all the parameters for that model compared to the other ones. Um, and then the other ones that we propose are all kind of fighting each other to to outperform each other, and they're all doing pretty well in general. And then these other ones do okay for part of it, but not okay for other parts of the curve. Um, <clears throat> and another way to view this data um, is to look at the area under the curve, and so we just plot, this is the area under the curve, so how, basically the area under all these curves. Um, and so you can see again that the, the most complicated model does perform the best, and these other ones perform okay, but a little bit worse, but pretty good. Um, and so, so that's encouraging, um, especially compared to, you know, the, the complexity difference between these two model, uh, between all these models. Um, the fact that these are performing as well as they are is a little bit encouraging. Um, <clears throat> and so, remember I said there are three kind of desired properties in the beginning. We want to, we want to evaluate uh, malware as being high risk. We want simplicity so that you can explain this to people, and we want uh, monotonicity so that you know, developers can reduce the risk of their applications. Um, and so <clears throat> they all perform pretty well. 
these first two models are very simple too, uh, whereas these last two models are a little bit more complicated. Um, and then these first two models also kind of maintain that monotonic property, whereas these last two really don't. And just to highlight that monotonic property, I'm going to show you two graphs um, and then wrap up. So this is showing uh, we ranked a bunch of applications. We sorted them based on how well they fit the models. And then we kind of cut it into buckets every 1%. And then we looked at how many permissions each application was requesting. Um, in these buckets. Um, and so what you see here is the average number of permission requests and then the min and max. That's what the error bars are, is the min and max. And so you can see that um, as you move to the right, you're getting more risky. And as you move to the right, these applications are requesting more and more permissions in general. So <clears throat> it might be a little bit confusing at first because you, know, you see these error bars going between like three and eight or something. Uh, but the reason for that is because, you know, not all permissions are the same. Some have been requested very infrequently, some are high-risk permissions. And so the way that they actually generate um, into the, the risk is going to be different. And so these three uh, permissions right here may be very high-risk permissions or very infrequently used permissions. And these eight up here may be very common permissions. And so that's why you see this kind of fluctuation within each bucket. Um, but I can assure you that if you take an app from one of these buckets and remove permissions, then it's definitely going to move uh, to, a, to a less risky posture. Um, and comparing this to the hierarchical mixture of naive bays, uh, you just see kind of wild swings here. You see that these 15 permissions over here um, are rated very, very uh, safe in some sense of the word um, <clears throat> because they fit the model very well. And so, um, and so this kind of... Uh, you lose this monotonic property. It's also not clear how well this translates now into a risk score because you can request 15 permissions, and if they're the right 15 permissions, then you can have you can fit the model very well. Um, and so, so kind of our evaluation of the summary is that um, all the probabilistic models perform well, but based on that simplicity and that monotonic property, we think that the the naive Bayes with the informative prior is actually the ideal model. Um, for this, because it is simple, it's monotonic, and, and you get that preference for risky permissions. Um, and so just the, the kind of the last conclusion is, uh, remember this is not about classification. Um, we're not framing this as we want to identify malware and identify benign stuff. Um, this is framed as we want to sort of find a way to um, evaluate the risk of applications. Um, um, and so we can help users make more informed decisions when they're going to install these applications. Um, and we think that this is one way to do that. <clears throat> uh, there are other features that we can include in our data. We could look at the source code of these applications. We could look at how they behave when they're on the system. And this could help us refine these models. Um, but for now, we only looked at the permissions. Um, and generally, uh, this seems to be a pretty good way. Um, it works pretty well. And it seems to be a pretty good way to summarize and convey this information out to users. Um, so with that, um, I'll open up to questions if you guys have any. Um, so uh, I was looking at the um, the model that you were uh, specifying with the informative prior. So did you look at permission clusters as such? You know, some applications will be looking, uh, some applications will require a certain set of permissions. And let us say, um, you know, uh, for example, you have a picture app. Uh, rather, um, a picture displaying app, not a picture taking sure. app. So it would require, you know, the SD card access. It would require inter internet access. Let's say you want to back it up or something like that. But 
if your informative prior was saying that uh, you know you had access to that kind of information where it said that it requires a camera access as well when it doesn't need to then you know automatically the uh, probability of that app being malicious go becomes higher so did you look at these clusters as well of uh, well, so that's a little bit tricky because we don't actually know what these apps' functionalities, sure. and so we have to really base this just on the permissions. And so, uh, so the way that we do this is we're learning the models that are going to fit the data we have as as well as possible. Okay. Um, if we could build, so for instance, uh, you know, with the informative prior in that basic model, we built some of that knowledge into it. Um, if there's a way to build some of that knowledge into those more complicated models too, then we could definitely do that. Um, but we we didn't do that. So. I just had another question. So um, the, the 2N and the N and the 1 that you gave, um, was I mean, I, I do see that it's a numerical approach, but can you just give a background as to why you chose those values? Those values? Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know exactly why we chose those values. Uh, we chose them because they seemed reasonable. Okay. Um, I don't think that they're, we didn't, um, I mean, Again, because we don't have labels on this data, we couldn't really tweak those values and see what the maximum mm -hmm. thing was going to be. Um, so we just kind of chose them because they seem reasonable, and they kind of penalized uh, yeah. they penalized the the theta values in a way that seemed uh, good. You know, I mean, they do give good weights to your data. Right. So yeah, thank you. Okay, I just had a general question. Sure. You had mentioned earlier in, about sandboxing, mm -hmm. and I was wondering if it's possible for one application to piggyback off of another. So, for instance, one has access to the camera. Can the other app piggyback off of it sure. and access the uh, data? Sure, sure. So that's, that's definitely possible. Um, <clears throat> and there's been some people who have pointed this out in previous research, um, so that you can have colluding applications, essentially, uh, that then reveal information that you didn't expect either one of them on their own to do. Um, uh, so the answer is yes. The other answer is, uh, so there needs to be a way for them to communicate. Um, if they use an explicit channel to communicate, then maybe you can um, you can kind of trace that. So uh, one way to do that is you can use inter-process communication. Uh, so you can expose these ports essentially out to other applications, but you have to generate permissions to do that, right? So you have to specify a permission that another app is going to request that permission, and then they can use that. So there are ways that maybe you could add some of this back in uh, to our thing, and then uh, so so basically when someone requests a permission to use that port, they'd have to also request all the the permissions that that other application is requesting. Um, there's covert channels, though. I think there's some research that show that you can use the vibration or the volume, changing the volume to actually pass information between different applications. So there are ways to do that, and you know we're not going to we're not going to prevent any of that. Um, there is some uh, value there, though. I think anyway, because uh, it's a lot harder to convince someone to install several different applications on their system. It's a lot easier to you know get lucky and have them install one, but. The, the chance of them installing two kind of rare, weird applications may go down. Maybe. I don't know. Um, so does that answer your question? Okay. So any other questions? All right. So if not, then that's it. Thank you. Thank you.